Well, today, today's Easter. This is one of the most momentous days that we celebrate in the Christian faith. It's today that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, on Easter, we celebrate Jesus rose from the grave, defeated sin, defeated Satan, defeated death. And so this morning, I just want us to talk about why Easter is so incredibly important. And there are many ways we could answer that question. The resurrection proves Jesus truly is the Son of God. It's true. The resurrection uh, is the guarantee that if we believe in Jesus, then we will also be forgiven of our sins. The resurrection also guarantees that if we believe in Christ, then just as he rose, we too will rise from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus testifies of his immense power, that he truly is the Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. And we could go on and on and on and talk about all that we learn from the resurrection. When we come to scriptures, we realize the resurrection of Christ cannot be ignored. And so what I want us to see this morning is that the resurrection has massive implications for how we live in the present and the hope we have for the future. I just want to see how it impacts us today and in everything going forward. So throughout the ages, people wrestle with questions. And some of these questions are, 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 are these. Who am I? Do I belong to something bigger than myself? Why is life full of pain and trials and confusion? What does it mean to be human? How do we differ from other animals? Or do we? How can I know what is right or wrong? Or is everything just relative? Why is the world the way it is? Why is, that, why is it that social justice, poverty, and peace are just never able to be solved? Why do people do evil things to other people? Where is our world going? Is there any cause for hope? I mean, those are just questions that get asked within every age, within every generation. I'm sure you have thought about those questions or some form of them. You've certainly heard other people talk about them. You'll hear them on the news. You'll hear them in social media. You'll hear them and just about everywhere. And the good news is the Bible is not silent about who we are and why we are created. The Bible speaks into some of the most difficult questions humanity has ever posed. And if you don't have a Bible, then I encourage you to take one of the Bibles in front of you in the chairs. It's your Bible. It's your gift from us to you. Keep that. Read it. It's one of the most precious gifts that we have from God. But if we understand Easter then we will not only understand the purpose of man, the state of the world, but we will also know the true purpose of man and the unsurpassable joy that is only found in Jesus. And so I hope you know this, that unless you have a biblical view of humanity, then your, then your view of humanity, your hopes, your dreams, your purposes are far too small and ultimately they will disappoint you and bring you to despair. Unless you have a biblical view of humanity, your view is way too small. So this is what I want us to see this morning. There's a glorious crown that awaits man. There's a rule and a reign and a throne that man was created for, but the crown of man only comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what I want us to see today. The crown of man only comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what I'd like you to do is, is stand. We stand each week as we read from God's word. We do so because God's word comes 
from God with his full authority, inspired by the Spirit for the purpose of equipping us, correcting us, so that we would be able to proclaim the truth to the world. And if you know, we preached through Hebrews not too long ago, so yesterday we're back in Hebrews, so this might sound somewhat familiar as we read this. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let me pray. Father, it is with great joy that we are gathered here today. It is with great joy that we get to gather as your body, testifying of your greatness, of your glory, of the gospel that you have given us. So Lord, as we have sung songs to you, and we had ended with it as well with my soul, I pray that now as we come into this text and we look at your word, that our souls would be made well. And I pray that there is anyone who does not yet know you, and they're searching for purpose and for meaning and for understanding in the world. Lord, I pray that through your word today that you would give faith and by your grace they would be born again and see you with new eyes and they would love you and desire to live for you with all their heart. God, build us up now in our faith and our love for you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we're going to walk through this passage in really three points. First, we're going to look at the extraordinary purpose of man. Then we're going to look at the obstacle that man faces. And then we're going to see how, how Jesus is the solution for man. And so we begin with the extraordinary purpose of man. If you look in verse 5, the author says, God did not create the world to be ruled by angels. Now, it might sound a little strange as we just jump into chapter 2, but all throughout chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, the author has been talking about angels, and he has shown how angels are created by God. Angels carry out the purposes of God. Angels deliver messages from God to man. Angels are designed to worship God. But as great and as powerful as angels are, they are not designed by God to rule the world. The author then kind of transitions and, and he quotes from Psalm 8. That's what he does when he says, it has been testified somewhere. He hasn't forgotten where this is from, so he doesn't have like a little blank at the moment going, I don't know where it's from. It's in the Old Testament, which is a general way of saying, it's been testified somewhere back in the Old Testament. And so he quotes from Psalm 8. I, I want to read, but I want to read a little bit more than what he just gives us. So I'm going to read Psalm 8 starting in verse 3. And so this is what he says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? 
You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. So the psalmist is just staring up at the sky, and he looks at the beauty and the vastness of creation. He's then moved to awe and wonder as he considers how much God cares for humanity. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I grew up, and in the summers, we would go to southwest Oklahoma. That's where my, my grandpa lived, and he had a farm. And so there's, there's not a lot of city out there and lights, so you're, you're just out there, and it's all dark. And we'd go out to the riverbed out at night, where we'd often have fires and do s'mores, and we'd lay in the back of the pickup trucks, and we'd stare up at the sky, and there's millions and billions and trillions of stars. I don't think I've ever seen more stars than in southwest Oklahoma in the back of a pickup late at night. And if you've been in like rural places, you know what I'm talking about. There's just tons of stars. So, so think thousands of years ago, David, he's not next to Seattle or Chicago or New York where there's all these lights, but it's just dark. And he looks up and he sees stars and stars and stars. And his just mind is filled with, this world is huge. It's massive. And yet God seems to direct his attention to this speck called earth and on earth to these beings called humans. And it moves them to awe and wonder. And when we read God creating the world in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God spoke everything in creation. But when it comes to man, it's like the whole story in Genesis just slows down. You know what I'm talking about? And it goes into more detail. And we see that God actually forms man with his hands. In Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times it says they're made in God's image. In all creation, man alone is created in the image of God. One theologian said this. I thought this was helpful. He says, Being made in the image of God ought to keep us from thinking too highly of ourselves, and yet, at the same time, it ought to keep us from thinking too little of ourselves. Isn't that good? Like, we're made in his image, so don't think too high, but we are made in his image. Humanity is specially designed by God to reflect God in this world. This is why we read in Psalm 139 that he knits us together in the mother's womb. Another theologian said it this way, man is not only the crown of creation, but also the object of God's special care. And it's clear that in all creation, God gives special attention to man. It's because of this, creation itself is given to man to rule. Twice in verse 8, we read that everything is subject to the rule of man. Amen, indeed. Like, everything is given to man. This is why we read in Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The world has been designed to be ruled by man, and man has been designed to rule the world. Isn't that incredible? To belong to humanity is quite an amazing gift by God. And, and I think as Christians, we, we know this. This is why we fight for the life of the unborn child. We know the child has been 
handcrafted by God. And they reflect the very image of God. This is why we strive to care for the elderly. Because we know that despite our young or older state, we reflect the very image of God. It's because we are made in his image that as Christians we fight against racism. We fight against inequalities. And we want to meet and provide for the physical needs of those <clears throat> who are around us. And even unbelievers know this, which is why they do great acts for humanity. They will build houses and provide medical care to those in third world countries or even in first world countries. They provide clean water to those who don't have access. They adopt children and bring them into their families. There is something ingrained into all of humanity that causes us to care for others, whether they're related to us or not, whether they're near to us or not. And we care not only for, for humanity, but we care for creation. There's no other creature in all of creation that does what humans do. We've been designed by God to rule and reign in this world. Now you might be thinking, but is that true? Is everything really subject to mankind? Do we really have dominion over everything? I mean, are there not a lot of things outside of our control? We have recently, in our family, have purchased a puppy. <laughs> Every moment, it's proven that we are not ruling this puppy. <laughs> we try, but he's exerting his dominion as we exert our dominion and seems to be a war of, of dominions and wills at this moment. I'm sure that we will win. But at the moment, it is up for the grabs. So what's crazy is the author knows that as he says, we've been created to rule, that you and I are going, but are we? Is that the way the world really works? And so he anticipates this objection, which moves us to the next point, the impossible obstacle that man faces. You see, if you look at the end of verse 8, we read, at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Aren't you glad he put that? Because if he didn't put that, we'd be like, but it's not. But he puts that there so we know not only that we're not, we're not misinterpreting something, but the biblical authors inspired by the Holy Spirit is saying, yet we don't see that. So why? Why don't we see it? If you and I and humanity is designed to rule and everything is subject to us, why is not everything subject to us? So it's here that we begin to understand why the world is the way it is today. So if we go back again into our Bibles all the way back to Genesis, we would notice that we've been created in God's image, but as we go into Genesis 3, a problem arises. You see, man did not want to rule under God, rather he wanted to rule apart from God. This is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is, is to reject God, is to rebel against God. And because Adam and Eve, the first two people that were ever created, because they sinned and all of humanity now comes from them, we're told that now all of humanity is born sinful, which means we are born rebelling and rejecting God. We're created in God's image, and yet now because of sin, that image has been distorted or, or twisted. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's helpful. Have you ever gone to, to like um, a fair or a carnival? And have you ever gone into the Hall of Mirrors? For one, it's just kind of fun going in there as you run into mirrors um, or watch other people run into mirrors. Um, but 
But when you go into those mirrors, you notice you look different, right? Some of them make you look really tall and thin. And some of you, uh, and, and some of those mirrors then make you look really short and squatty. <laughs> what is you squatty? I think that's helpful. And the mirrors distort what you really look like. And, and that's what sin did, though, to us. It distorted what we were supposed to look like into now something different. You can still see the image, and yet it's, it's not right. G.K. Chesterton said this, Whatever is or is not true about men, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. I find that helpful. We're created a rule, and yet verse 8 says, yet we don't see that, and yet that's exactly what he's saying. Whatever we are, we're not at this moment what we were created to be. Because of sin, man will do everything he can to define himself apart from a relationship with God. In fact, I'll just give you a few examples. One, man is physical. Now, this, this view is often heralded by scientists. It says that the world is only what you can see and observe and measure. This view denies the spiritual. It places man on the same level as every single other animal, maybe, perhaps, more evolved, or maybe not, depending upon your scientific view of it. But I'd ask you, deep down, don't we know that there is something different about man from other animals? than just pure evolution? Number two, we see man is, is sexual. This view, of course, if you've been in um, psychology by, by Sigmund Freud, was, was upheld, and it's still promoted today. It says man does all that he can, for all that he does for pleasure and survival. In fact, it's, it's because of this view itself, the crudest form of this theory is seen everywhere today in prostitution and pornography. Do we see man lives on pleasure? But it's also this view that says if you define yourselves based upon your, your sexual desires, then you can define yourself however you want, which is what we, we see today. Number three, we see man is psychological. This view is, is found everywhere in every culture. It produces phrases like, like you do you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Be yourself, as if if you just look inward, you'll be okay. You become your own authority. You determine what is right and wrong. And under this view, everything becomes relative. And you've all bought into this because you've all listened to the movie, or you've all watched the movie Frozen, right? <laughs> my wife earlier today, she's like, are you quoting Frozen? And I could just like taste and hear and feel the disdain in her voice like, like, what are you doing? And I'm like, no, no, it works. It works. <laughs> As I gave it to Raymond this week, he was singing it all in the office. No, not really, not really. But you, you know the hit song, Let It Go. Don't, you, don't have to, you can sing it if you want. It's weird. Some of you are like, can we? Um, listen to these lyrics, though. Listen to these lyrics under the understanding we want to define ourselves apart from God. We're psychological beings. I am who I am. I will define myself. So just think about this. These are the lyrics. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no, no rules for me. I for, I'm free. And our kids herald that. 
And we sing it with them because it's so catchy. And yet, when we listen to it, we're like, wait a minute. This singing, the very worldview that pushes God away and say we need no truth from God. What's common to all these views is that man is trying to live and define himself apart from God. And what we see is the obstacle that man faces, it's, it's us, it's you, it's your heart. It's that we're all born with wicked, depraved, self-exalting, crown-grabbing hearts. And that we want to rule the way we want to rule apart from any other authority. And what we see as the problem is that man will never find everlasting joy, meaning, and hope apart from God. In fact, what we're told is because we've rebelled against God, that we're told God's wrath is against man. Apart from God, man's eternal destiny is not the crown, but everlasting torment. Do you know that? That's what the Bible teaches from beginning to end. So now we come to the last point, and it's at this point we see how Easter provides the only solution for man. Easter reveals the true purpose of man. Easter brings everlasting hope to man. But Easter is not about just simply bringing us back to that pre-sinful state in Genesis 1 and 2. It does something far greater than that. It's not taking us backwards, but it's taking us to a far greater future. It's taking us to our ultimate purpose that's only able to be realized in Jesus Christ. And this is where we see that the solution for man is Jesus. And so I have three points underneath this one. So see, now it goes from a three-point sermon to like a six-point sermon. That's how we do this as pastors. But look at verse 9. It says that Jesus come in the flesh. It says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So two questions here. Who's made lower than the angels? Jesus is. It's clearly who we're talking about. Question number two, who else is made lower than the angels? Go back to verse seven. Man. So who did Jesus become like? Man. We're created lower than the angels. So what did Jesus do? He entered into humanity lower than the angels in the same way you and I are created. And if the psalmist was moved to awe and wonder, now, now get this, this is good. If the psalmist is moved to awe and wonder by looking at the stars and going, wow, look at all these stars and all the sky, looking at the vastness of creation. Maybe he looks at mountains, maybe he looks at trees and all of these things and he's just blown away. And then he goes, wow, God cares for humanity. How much more does Easter the death and resurrection of Christ testify of God's love for humanity. You don't need to look at the stars. You don't need to look at the mountains. You don't need to look at the clouds. Those are great. And they still testify of God's love, but far more than clouds and stars and mountains and the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, who's existed forever, who in Hebrews chapter 1 says he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the one who's created and sustains all things. He entered into creation like you and me so he would save us from our sins. Listen, there is no salvation offered to angels. 
There's no salvation. Those who have rebelled against God are forever damned. Will forever experience his wrath. But, but why then is it? God enters into creation in the flesh like you and me. Because we're made in his image. We're made and designed to reflect his image. He created us for a special relationship with him. But why did Jesus come then? So what was he achieving? We see that Jesus went to the cross and he suffered in our place. If you go back to verse 9, it says, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, we'll look at the crown in a moment. So, so we'll come back to that. But, but first, I want us to see, why did he receive the crown? Because Jesus came to suffer death. His mission was Good Friday. His mission was the cross. Jesus entered as a baby, lived for 30 plus years for the purpose of going to the cross. And why did he do this? What did, what did man do that we needed Christ Jesus to come and die on the cross? We sinned against God. We rebelled against God. We rejected God. We wanted all the benefits of God without God. We wanted Rule and power and prestige without submission to God. Like Elsa, crazy, we just compared ourselves to Elsa, but like Elsa, <laughs> we wanted to decide what's right and wrong. We wanted to be free, but the thing is, rebellion against God doesn't bring freedom. What does it bring? Slavery into sin. And just like there's always penalty for breaking the law of the land, there is a penalty for breaking God's law, which Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is, you know that, it's death. And that death is not just a, a, temp, a, a moment in time where you die and you're annihilated. But he's talking about not only do you die, but then there's eternal torment beyond the grave. One, Ill, one pastor described God's wrath like this. He said, imagine a wall of water, 100 miles high, 100 miles wide, and it's coming at you at 100 miles an hour. There's no escape. The wall, of, the wall of water is decimating, it's destroying, it's annihilating everything in its path. You have no hope of survival, but then right before this wall of water hits you, there's a great cavern that opens up in the ground before you, and the entire wall of water is swallowed up in this cavern, and it's closed up, and not one single drop touches you. That's what the cross does. That's what Jesus does at the cross. He, he absorbs, he swallows the entire wrath of God so that we who believe in him would not even be touched by the smallest amount of his wrath. Which notice, if you're a believer, no matter what you're going through, what trial you're going through, you will never experience the wrath of God. And whatever trial you are in is not God's wrath upon you. You know that. Because God's wrath has been fully absolutely swallowed at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus does for us at the cross. Galatians 3.13 says it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Now you might say, but, but why? Why did God do this? Did we earn this? What, what, what made him go to the cross? Look again at verse 9. For by for the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Grace, grace, grace. 
grace. That's why he came. There's a lot of people who look at God's word or, or have heard other people talk about God and they say, well, the God of the Bible is just mean and he's angry. And he's just wrathful all the time. I don't want to meet this God. How could I love this God? And yet, when we actually read the Bible, we see he's patient, he's steadfast, and he's slow to anger, and he's gracious, and he's good, and he's merciful, and he's rich in love, and his mercies are new every single morning. We didn't deserve the cross, but by grace, God sent his son, and by grace, Jesus, for the joy set before him, went to the cross that we could be saved. And the word taste, when it says he tasted death, doesn't mean he nibbled at it. Doesn't mean like what your kids do with broccoli. It's small, it'll taste like we're good right now. Mom, no more. No, it means he fully partook of it. So he fully experienced the death, the wrath of God so that you and I who believe in him could be saved. So what does it mean for us? We're told that whoever believes in Jesus, we're free from sin, we're free from the power of sin, we're made clean, we're given eternal life with God, we no longer rebel against God's rule, but now we love his rule, and we delight in his rule. But that's not all. There's more, and this is what I want us to see this morning. This is where we go back to the crown. The last point is that Jesus received the crown of glory. That's what we read. If you go back to verse 9, it says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And we know he, he's crowned because he went to the cross. That's what it means, because of the suffering of death. So he's crowned because of the cross. At the cross, he defeated sin, death, and Satan. At the cross, we see he, he then rises from the grave three days later, proving that if we believe in him, we, we have eternal life. And he receives this crown, which means he's king. What we lost because of rebellion, Jesus obtained through his obedience at the cross. This is what Philippians 2 says. It speaks about this, this crowning of Jesus, the exalting of Jesus. Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is king. Isn't that good news? Like he is king. He rose and he's king. And he's not only the king that we ought to want, but he's the king we need. He's perfect, he's righteous, he's just. He's good, and he's absolutely glorious. So what do I mean by that? Well, he's no longer lower than the angels. Look, look back. Look back one page to the left in your Bibles, if you're still in Hebrews, to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 4 says this. Jesus has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Jesus, for a time, entered into humanity where he was made lower than the angels. He suffered, he died, he rose again, where now he's crowned with glory. We're now in chapter 1, verse 4. We're given this view of him as he now sits at the right hand of God because his mission has been completed and he's far greater than the angels. Jesus rose from the grave. 
And, no, and he didn't rise back to his earthly state. But something even more glorious than that. He rose for glory for all time. And right now, he's in heaven. And these words are being sung. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's what's being sung right now and for all time in heaven. Listen, our, our greatest need is, is, not, is not a better president. is not a better political leader. Our greatest need is Jesus. It's King Jesus. There's one more truth I want us to see. Look at verse 10. We didn't read this before, so we'll read it now. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What does he do for those who believe in him? What, where does he bring them? He brings them to glory. What's Jesus been crowned with? He's been crowned with glory. And when you believe in him, he brings you to glory. When we believe in Jesus, we're brought into the eternal kingdom of God, but we're not brought in as servants. We're not cleaning the holy toilets and holding open the holy doors. It's not the way we enter into the kingdom of God. But we're brought in as sons and daughters. And we share in the very glory and the very rule of Jesus. Do you know that? Like when you're a believer, you're created now to share in his rule over everything. Our king, now get this, he's so glorious, he's not threatened by sharing his glory with you. Isn't that incredible? Like you'll see this in no other religion. There's no other faith where there's a God who creates beings in his image, dies for them, rises on their behalf after he suffered their punishment, saves them, and shares his glory with them for all of eternity. You will not find that anywhere else. But listen to what the Bible says, Revelation 21, 7. The one who conquers, which means the one who perseveres in their faith, will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my, my son. We're children. We're sons and daughters. Revelation 2, 26 and 7. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Revelation 3, 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Do you see that? Like, where does Jesus sit? On the throne with the Father. So there's not like multiple thrones here. There's one throne. The Father sits on the throne. Jesus sits with the Father. And where do we sit? Way down here? No, he says, and you sit with me on the throne. With the Son, with the Father. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. That's the promise that we're given at salvation. The world says might makes right. The world says the strong will survive. The world says trust in yourself. The world says be true to yourself. And listen, you can pursue your own crown here on this earth. You can run hard after your own crown. You can try to earn it by your power. You can gain a lot of wealth and possessions and, and, and hold that up so that people will, will recognize you and honor you. And you can seek to have your crown for maybe the next 20, 30 years here on earth. 
But the Bible says if, if you want your crown apart from God on this earth, then know that for all of eternity you will suffer his wrath. Or we trust in the king, in King Jesus who came and died for us, that we'd be saved, set free from the power of sin, and ultimately we would be drawn to him that we would share in glory with him, not because of any power, not because of anything that we have done, but all by grace, which means that his grace and his glory that he shares with us, it frees us from trying to use power, prestige, and possessions now to obtain a crown. You get that? Like you're actually freed to work, to just to show others the love of God. You're actually freed as a mom just to, to work and to love your children and your husband, not for fame and glory, because you've already given, been given glory and fame by God. As husbands, as, as men, you're, you're free to now work, not to try to gain the crown here, but now to, to love others, to shepherd your children, not so you compete with your neighbors, not so you can one-up them when they get something better, but you've been set free from all that. Why? Because of the grace and glory of God that is yours for all of eternity, that you know in the new heavens and new earth, you sit with Jesus as he sits with the Father on the throne for all of eternity, sharing in the infinite, perfect glory of God. We receive the crown and share in the joy of Jesus' glory only through the cross of Jesus Christ. Look, there is no crown apart from the cross. Jesus endured the cross so he would receive the crown, and by our faith in him, he shares the crown of glory with us. That's Easter. Where not only did he conquer sin, conquer death, conquer Satan, but he rises as king. And by grace saves us so we would endure with him, so we would share glory with him for all of eternity. Listen, if you are here, if you not yet believed in Jesus, then I, I ask you, what other king would you want to believe in? Who else would you rather place your hope in? Yourself? I mean, just think about how futile that would be. And if the Bible says, if what the Bible says is true, then ultimately you, you can't obtain a crown. And whatever crown you think you obtain, it's mere trinkets. And at death, you lose everything. And you will suffer the wrath of God. Listen, the question is not, will you bow before King Jesus? It's, when will you bow? Will you bow now before him out of glory and joy that he offers us? Or will it be because his wrath is upon you and you cannot rise before him anymore for all of eternity as you suffer his wrath? I urge you, if you have not yet confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you do not yet know him, he's a good and righteous and gracious king has paid the penalty that we could not pay, that only he could pay, so we could have everlasting life. Only in King Jesus do we experience man's true, ultimate purpose, to spend eternity with God. So I want to share, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 1 John 3, 2. This is what it says. It says, beloved. So this is, this, is how, this is how scripture speaks of you. Just think about this is beloved. 
as the Spirit is inspiring these writers to write, saying, like, we're, we're brothers in Christ. We're family in Christ. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, the return of Christ. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we'll see him as he is. And you'll be with him for all of eternity, on the throne, sharing in his glory, because he went to the cross on our behalf. So I urge you, believe in Jesus as your king, and you will see Jesus because you will be like Jesus. Right now in Revelation 5, this is what's being said. Worthy is King Jesus to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on earth. That is Easter. That is Easter. There is a crown, and the crown only comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. Join me as I pray. Father, Father, we praise you. Your son has come, and he died on the cross in our place, tasting death for us, fully absorbing your wrath. And that, God, we who believe in you would be forgiven. We'd be adopted into your family. We become a new creation. And Lord, we'd be destined to sit with you on your throne, enjoying your glory and your grace for all of eternity. And none of it's because we deserve it. It's all because you are good and gracious and merciful. So Father, I pray that we rejoice at Easter today. We rejoice in all that you have done for us. And God, as we go forth, may we do so boldly today, testifying to others that your son has come and died so we could live forever with you. And Lord, as we partake of communion this morning, I pray that this true is an act of worship and that you would be greatly, greatly glorified. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. The ushers are going to uh, come forward and they're going to dismiss you.